Welcome. I'm your host, Kendra Hall, and you are listening to the Getting Research into Practice podcast, the series in which we ask research and industry professionals in different agriculture sectors some burning industry questions to find out what makes a successful innovation. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start? You can tell me a little bit about your background, your area of research. Sure. Um, I graduated from the University of Guelph in animal biology in 1997. And then I went out to the University of Alberta and completed a combined master's and PhD in nutrition and metabolism under the direction of doctors Ron Ball and Paul Penchars, where we looked at amino acid metabolism and neonatal piglets, and specifically to look at the impact of the gut on amino acid metabolism. After that, I uh, spent a short period of time with the Alberta government uh, as their equine extensionist, largely focused on helping producers and also uh, writing a um, guidance document for the Alberta equine industry. I then moved to the University of Guelph and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in companion animal nutrition with Dr. Jim Atkinson, where we took isotopic techniques and we then applied that methodology to quantify amino acid requirements in the dog. It was largely that work, which was sponsored uh, by the IAMS company uh, as the, um, as a subsidiary of Procter & Gamble that then recruited me to go and work for the IAMS company in Ohio, USA. And in 2007, um, I went to work for the IAMS company in Procter & Gamble. And in 2014, the IAMS company was sold by Procter & Gamble to uh, Mars. And so I did spend a year working for Mars, largely under the direction of their discovery center, which would be the Waltham Center in the UK. And uh, after that period of time, I came back to the University of Guelph as an assistant professor in companion animal nutrition. And that leads me to my program today, which is a fairly large comparative nutrition program. So we look at dogs, cats, horses, pigs, and I sit on other committees where we have other species uh, as well. And I run a fairly large lab uh, comprised of postdoctoral fellows, PhDs, and master's students. And we're largely focused on protein and energy metabolism. Awesome. Quite, a, quite an extensive background you have, especially in monogastrics. Uh, why do you do what you do and what kind of effect does it have on either consumers and the industry on a day-to-day level? Yeah, we do. Um, I'll focus on the companion animal work, which is the largest component of my research program um, and my teaching and service. And so we do a lot of work where we really feed new information into the pet food industry. So uh, whether that be uh, screening new ingredients, understanding uh, how protein ingredients particularly can meet or provide other clinical benefits to the cat and or dog. But we also are really focused on how macro and micronutrients 
macronutrient differences may affect protein and energy metabolism. Um, and we also do a lot of quantification of amino acid requirements. So my dog program right now is largely focused on um, uh, the inclusion of field peas and whether that's associated with any detrimental health effects and or positive ones for that matter. And my feline program is largely focused on sulfur amino acid metabolism in the cat. Um, so understanding what those requirements are and how the provision of dietary amino acids may affect a myriad of uh, different metabolic processes. Awesome. What are, uh, do you think some of the biggest challenges in pet nutrition or what challenges do you anticipate might grow in the future in, in protein and getting those uh, supplements out? Yeah, I think it, in in my opinion, one of the challenges that we're really going to face is that our our relationship with dogs and cats have become much stronger than they've ever been in history. Uh, we now share our houses with them. They, in a lot of cases, replace the um, the role of a child. So you know, we 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 very deeply love these animals and care for them. And that has really brought a demand for a lot more food that would be intended for the human food chain. So I spend a lot of my time really focusing on that tension, which is the spread of those food ingredients among all the different components of the food chain um, from humans, dogs, cats, agricultural animals. And how we are going, are we going to be able to meet the demand that some com consumers have for their dog and cat food that such as human grade, as an example, probably the strongest example, versus the fact that we have very feed grade uh, pet foods out there as well. And so the pet food industry is really going to be challenged with ingredient availability and total cost. And we need to be able to support those who can afford super premium down to people who have, you know, 15 or $20 a week to spend on dog or cat food. And I think that that category is really important too, because it's very clear that animals improve our own lives. And I believe strongly that there shouldn't be a, a socioeconomic obstacle um, to being able to share that relationship with a, a dog or cat. And so I think our biggest tension point is going to be able to keep that option open for everyone in society while optimally supporting the health and well-being of our dogs and cats. Absolutely. I hope those challenges come up with some, some great innovation so we can get through that. Where do you think you find yourself pulling innovation ideas from? Yeah, I, I have a really wide network um, that spans almost every sector of the food industry. And so I constantly am looking for different um, inspiration, right? And so we can see food science innovations, engineering innovation,
organs. Um, I'm really interested in biometry um, and being able to track not only our own uh, metabolism on a daily basis, but that of our dog and cat. Um, that's a really interesting innovation that would allow you to make real-time changes in what's what you're offering your dog and cat to meet its own uh, physiology. Um, and so I, I pull my ideas from everywhere. I spend a lot of time with the pet food industry, sure, but um, definitely seek for inspiration um, elsewhere. Yeah, inspiration come from, come from anywhere, they say, right? Yep. <laughs> what, uh, what innovations have you seen put into practice uh, recently in pet nutrition or do you think will be coming uh, in the future that have really had a big impact on the industry? Oh, well, I think I'm pretty critical about this one because I don't think that there's been, in my opinion, I don't think that there's been a disruptive or a transformational innovation in the pet food industry uh, really since extrusion, which changed everything, right? I mean, it really brought um, food security to our dogs and cats. It's, it's a stable food source. It's a balanced food source that wasn't available prior, really prior to World War II. And so we, we drastically increased the health and well-being of our dogs and, and cats there. Um, I think that I would probably say that the, one of the things that has changed the pet food industry the most recently is direct to consumer. And direct-to-consumer, uh, I think, has opened the avenue for more of this human-grade delivery, right? Because if, you're, if you have fresh or lightly cooked or raw foods that you, you're choosing to sell, uh, they are best placed with direct-to-consumer, just like most of those human food, like you can get all these deliveries to yourself. They really mimicked that innovation. And then I think that COVID probably pushed direct to consumer. Um, and, and I imagine some people will never go back. I mean, if, if you're getting fresh dog and cat food every week in the mail, now you don't have to go and choose a dog or a cat food at your pet food store or your grocery store or mass. Um, and I think that direct to consumer is probably where we're going to see uh, continued uh, changes to what we suggest that dogs and cats are fed. Absolutely. Necessity breeds innovation. So hopefully that'll continue to, uh, to be a great way forward. Uh, can you think of maybe a time or give an example of a time when research was kind of successfully applied, at least that you saw uh, at a consumer industry level? What do you think made that project or that innovation so successful? Yeah. Um, I would actually have to, I'd probably go back and I have the benefit of having worked in industry where I got to work on both discovery, which took a different path um, in contrast to doing in-market claims support. But I think some of the coolest work that I did that went directly to a product was a lot of work that uh, myself and others at P&G did around uh, L-carnitine addition to cat foods. And um, 
L-carnitine was already included in the cat foods. There are multiple patents on the amount of L-carnitine for benefits that you can apply. And we really wanted to find out if there were additional benefits for the L-carnitine white space that, that we owned. And it was always around, I mean, L-carnitine is this little micronutrient that helps to facilitate fat um, oxidation. And that's how we always, always claimed it. But when we dug, dug deeper into the literature, there were behavioral um, uh, alter, alterations that are made when an animal consumes L-carnitine. And our dogs and cats can't talk to us. So what owners can, it, it, you have to think about the touch points that they have with their animals. And other than um, the touch point of urine and feces, which seem to be a daily interaction with your, especially with your dog, um, and a little bit less so maybe with your cat. But the other thing that every every pet owner can see is a behavioral change. And we did some work along with Ian Duncan here at the University of Guelph when he was a professor in animal behavior. And we looked at the cat's motivation to play and found that when cats were supplemented with L-carnitine, they were mo more motivated to play. And that was a really cool, uh, compelling uh, claim set that the owner really understood and really helped to keep L-carnitine in feline formulas. And uh, so I, I think that might be the best example. Absolutely. Well, maybe on the flip side, uh, what do you think, was there any kind of less successful projects that didn't really get applied or kind of got stuck in that research phase? What do you think could have changed or at what step to make it kind of more successful? Yeah. I would actually say that I don't think that all research should be successful. And the most excite well, I, I think if you let the data guide you, um, I would say that I haven't seen anything that has failed to go into innovation when the data strongly supported it. Now, what I would say is that in my not so humble opinion, that a lot of scientists sometimes fall in love with a solution and not the problem. And if you've been pursuing a line of research that isn't going to get commercialized and doesn't benefit, in my case, the cat or the dog, um, you need to fail fast and you need to leave it behind. Um, I would, I would say that in in that case, um, you know, probably one of the things that um, the research that I've been involved in, in my, over my whole career that was really hard to walk away from was some of the longevity work, work um, that myself and then former PhD student Leslie McKnight, who's now a research scientist at Trow Nutrition, uh, that she worked on extensively and with collaboration with Dr. Jim France is manahaptilose and whether this um, anti-glycolytic uh, uh, compounds would would extend life and it was a very difficult area to work in the results were extremely variable um, there was many other scientists working on the same compound at the same time and there was a lot of money invested in research and it 
and the hard decision had to be made to walk away from it. Um, it, sh it, you know, maybe that would have benefited from a quicker failure. Um, but that's an example of kind of being committed to something that you think is going to come to fruition. And then you really start looking at the data and you're like, what are we going to communicate? Nothing is consistent. Um, why would somebody pay for this, right? Like if you buy a skin cream that says it's going to make you look 10 years younger and you pay thousands of dollars over the next six months and you see no change, why are you going to keep buying it? it, it it's not going to help. Absolutely. I mean, cost drives a lot of the world, right? So what do you think are some of the big barriers, maybe other than cost or consumer acceptability might be a big one uh, for pet nutrition? Like what barriers stop you from implementing maybe new innovations? Yeah, I think that pet food production, I think research um, and uh, align pretty closely with, I think what one of my biggest concerns in agriculture is, which is people. Um, these disciplines, research is really hard and animal research is really, really hard. Um, so if you hope to work 37.5 hours a week when you're in a graduate program, when you're doing animal research, that is just not a realistic expectation. Um, when you're working with animals, I, I don't know about you, but I every night I think about, I have a dog colony and I have a cat colony that I oversee. And every night I think about, okay, is somebody going to phone me at midnight when, right? Because animals get into situations and you're, you're constantly afraid that something could happen to them. So um, I think that people that are dedicated and knowledgeable and willing to work hard um, with a focus on truth, transparency, with a modicum of empathy um, is probably our biggest obstacle going forward, making sure that we can get those people. Yeah, I think there's been a bit of a labor shortage across the agriculture industry. I think we've heard that a few times now. Uh, what advice maybe do you have uh, or you wish you had uh, for getting your research into practice, maybe as an early career researcher, that would have helped improve the adoption of your research by consumers or even help get uh, it off the ground faster? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I have the, uh, I have the benefit of having worked in industry. So I got trained to make that a consideration. Um, and so now that I'm back in academia, uh, I have a real lens on if this can't translate into a real world um, solution for the industry, we shouldn't be working on it. It's not worth our time and effort. I think that the, the biggest thing to think about is that entire path. But most, you, you, we have to remember that every single company or uh, it, in, within the pet food industry, as an example, has a different glide path to commercialization. So it means that you need really strong connections with the private partner that you're working with. Um, it could also be a public uh, company as well. Um, but the company that you're working with, you need to partner closely with them to understand what their expectations and you have to help them um, communicate those internally. With my new research chair, I'm working extremely closely, not just with the scientists at Champion Pet Food, but 
but I'm already keyed in. I meet biweekly with the marketing group from Champion. And this is all to make sure that that communication path is intact. And if somebody doesn't think that that is a possibility to uh, make it to commercialization because of obstacle acts, um, that, that's a discussion that leads us to, well, then we should spend the money differently on something that could impact the business and will resonate with your consumers. So I think the biggest thing is partner. It, you have to partner with the industry. You, you cannot be agnostic and, uh, about that. And you have to think really broadly about your application too. So how many companies uh, would be interested in this and what are all their different strategies to commercialization and then also to scientific and lay dissemination? Absolutely. You got to keep a finger on the pulse of the industry you're in, right? For sure. What uh, tool or resource do you think you use or is most useful specifically for keeping uh, in touch with the industry uh, for getting your research into practice or for uh, keeping it relevant? Um, well, maybe my tactic is kind of a funny one. I would say the most important tool is your phone because uh, I delete people's emails all the time by accident, but I have a lot of people's phone numbers and um, I think it's very important if you want to be successful, if you are not comfortable reaching out on the phone, reaching out on Zoom, going to conferences so you can network with people, that is that is probably the most important way uh, to keep connected. And listen, listen a lot. Absolutely. Well, those are all my questions for today. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining me and for all your great insight and advice. Thank you, Kendra. It was great. Thank you.